0: Full circle, yes, we roll 360 degrees, high high, three hundred and sixty degrees, high high, three hundred and six, three hundred and six, three hundred and sixty degrees, high high
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. The show was written, produced, and recorded in Huchin occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the Bay Area.
2: On tonight's show, we commemorate Armistice Day, Veterans Day, Remembrance Day, a memorial of the day in 1918 when the Allied forces signed an armistice with Germany, effectively ending all military operations and hostilities in all theaters and fronts of World War I. On tonight's show, we'll hear from two veterans who have focused their lives on peace. Discuss strategies for ending war and the military-industrial complex with left-wing military historian Jason Riddler Ramirez. We'll also hear some anti-war music, both well-known songs and some just written. All that tonight on Full Circle, where your hosts, Darlene Pagano, and Kat Petru stay with us dragon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome again to Full Circle. Tonight, as the nation prepares to honor its men and women who committed themselves to terms of military service, we want to take a look at how this national holiday came to be and find out what emotions this day evokes in some veterans looking back on their service. One way we can do that tonight is to ask questions like, what happens when the moment is right to seize peace? To have a time when the nation's countries stop bombing and killing each other? What happens when you take the time to see the horrible devastation you have wrought upon your fellow human beings? War can stop for a moment of peace. That's what happened. In the 11th minute of the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, which marked the end of one of the most vicious wars of modern man, World War One, As the war-torn people of the world reflected on the horrors of war, they deemed that day sacred, November 11th armistice day a solemn day to reflect on the horror of war and a time to honor and hold sacred peace but how has that day become the veterans day we now know and how is it um, how's its true intention of honoring peace been lost let's check in with free will and franklin as he speaks with two veterans who became veterans for peace
0: Hey everyone, welcome. This is Free Roland Franklin on Full Circle. And tonight, in honor of tomorrow's Veterans Day, we will take a look at the original holiday that was known as Armistice Day. We'll learn about that day and how we can honor the peace that was the true intent behind this national and even global holiday. To do that, we have two members of Veterans for Peace with us. For those that don't know, Veterans for Peace is a global organization of military veterans and their allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace by using their experiences and lifting their voices. They inform the public of the true causes of war and the enormous costs of war with an obligation to heal the wounds of war. With us tonight, we have Doug Rawlings. Doug is a Vietnam veteran, July 1969 to August 1970. He's a teacher and a poet and was one of the original founders of Veterans for Peace in 1985. He has since served on the Veterans for Peace National Board as Vice President and was Veterans for Peace Poet Laureate. Doug organizes Veterans for Peace Letters to the Vietnam Memorial Wall Project. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for joining us. Also joining us is Tarek Koff. Tarek is an Army paratrooper, was an Army paratrooper from 1959 to 1962. He is currently on the Veterans for Peace Board of Directors. And has organized a number of Veterans for Peace peace delegations to places like Standing Rock, Jeju Island, South Korea, Okinawa, and Palestine. He is also the managing editor of Veterans for Peace, national hard copy, quarterly newspaper, Peace in Our Times. Thanks for joining us on Full Circle tonight, Tariq.
3: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks for joining us. I think this is an important topic, and I'm glad you guys are here to um, make clear what's really going on. So let's just start with tomorrow's holiday. It is now known as Veterans Day, but give us a brief history lesson on the original day known as Armistice Day, created at the end of World War I, and then how it changed after World War II, and then let's get into what we've lost in the way that we honor this holiday today. So let's start with Tarek.
3: Originally, as most of you know, the the day was called Armistice Day. And it was on the 11th hour, the 11th minute of the 11th month that the peace or the armistice at at the First World War, ending the First World War, was uh, signed. And of course, the holiday came to mean that very thing. They felt that that was the end, the war to end all wars that we had a permanent peace and it was a solemn holiday. It was a much more solemn holiday than it is today until it was changed. Eventually it was changed to Veterans Day, which more is more about uh, celebrating the heroics and the militarism and the wars that keep going on and honoring the veterans. The first one, Armistice say was a more solemn holiday uh, day. I won't even call it a holiday, and uh, that's what we want to come back to. As veterans, we're going to call it Armistice Day. We don't want to be honored for being, you know, war makers.
0: So, Doug, why don't you tell us what you think we've lost in the transformation from Armistice Day here to now Veterans Day? Because we want to honor our veterans, but we also want to keep in mind, you know, what this original day was, was the peace.
4: The original day and the years immediately following it were fed by people's uh, complete sense of horror about what war really involved, freshly, freshly out of it, one of the most vicious, murderous wars in humankind, World War I. And so they were feeling deep in their hearts, you know, uh, far beyond just the intellectual exercise, the real need for peace, for no war. And, and, and they actually worked very hard. All these nations involved in the, in the Chinese worked really hard on reducing their military forces to basically defensive forces. What's happened since to World War II, you know, we renamed it Veterans Day. Now it's become a glorification of war in, in an odd, peculiar way. And lost the whole sense of the sacrifice that everybody makes, not just uh, soldiers involved, when, when war takes place. You know, as Tarak alluded to, what Veterans Day, which we'd rather call Armistice Day, of course, is a really, it's a difficult day, right? Because a lot of us want to be acknowledged that we served in the military. I use the word served carefully there. But we're really not um, particularly proud of, what, of the service that we gave that we went through. So it's a very conflicted day, uh, dealing with it. Spectrum's peace was, was created to abolish war. That's our statement of, of purpose, right? And so, you know, what w- we would rather do is not even think about this, the, the celebration of war, but in fact, think about the, the horrors of war and, and, and to really explore a real strong sense of remorse uh, about what we've done. Um, so, switch going to Armistice Day. Uh, I wouldn't. Even, I don't. I don't want to say back to Armistice Day. I would rather say forward to Armistice Day, where we can once again start celebrating peace instead of celebrating war.
0: Well, let me throw this out there. Talk about the Veterans for Peace campaign to reclaim Armistice Day, but more importantly, why is it so important to reclaim the true meaning? Tarak, let's start with you. Then we'll get a little bit from Doug.
5: Well,
3: we see war right now as devastating not only countries overseas not only afghanistan iraq syria uh... you name it the violence that is incumbent in war we see it devastating our society back home we could see war at home war abroad They, they go together and violence at home and violence abroad and the violence is reaching a, a point where it, it is just incredibly destructive and doesn't show any signs of abating. We have an unlimited war on terror going on. Our police force is militarized. Everywhere you look, there is violence, and it's a celebration of violence. There's a connection with patriotism to violence. You know, Our soldiers, we've got to back our soldiers, and, you know, patriotic, and the flag, and America, and all that stuff like that, and it's destroying our society as well as other societies and we got to come back to a feeling of peace and real peace and not just the absence of war but a peace where people are fed where people are homed, where people can live decent lives where people are not exposed to racism and persecution and all of that so Armistice day means all of that it means stop it means just stop the violence and we're going we're to be celebrating armistice day in that way Veterans for Peace, all over the country, including at the border, because we see tremendous violence at the border that's going on. And we will be at the border at Nogales celebrating Armistice Day, asking for let us have a true armistice, a real armistice. Uh, we and we really celebrate peace, and we value peace, not war.
0: I hear that. And what about you, Doug? Why is it so important <clears throat> that we reclaim the true meaning of Armistice Day?
4: I, I think it's important not just for us, uh, but for our children and our grandchildren. Mm. Uh, that's, that's who we have to be working for. I mean, to, to, have, to actually have our grandchildren, because it's too late for our children perhaps, to grow up in a, in a culture that's not constantly in fear, that's not constantly at war, that's not constantly spe- spending, for example, $700 billion a year on making war. Uh, if we were using that money for education and, and everything else, our grandchildren would be living much better lives. And I'm I'm afraid that they're, I'm terrified really of what their future holds for them, uh, if we continue on the path that we're going on. So that's what we want. I mean, we, it's it's and as Tarak said, it's not we don't want just what the absence of war. I mean, we want you know true peace with justice. Uh, it, it, it reigns, right? Where, I mean, there's equality, uh, where people are, are truly living uh, in some degree of joy. Uh, that's what we're looking for. You know, it, it, and, and sometimes people say, well, that sounds awfully Pollyannish. You know? And people said the same thing when we formed Veterans for Peace. We said, if we want to we'll abolish war. And they said, oh, come on. You know, humans have been you know, going to war forever, which is not true right? I mean, so we're not biologically uh, condemned to go to war. So, you know, we're basically saying we, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a change in the mindset, right? If we can just change the way we look at the world, uh, then we can
3: perhaps live in peace. And that's what we want. Could I add on to yeah, that? Go ahead. We have a saying and we say peace is possible. And what that means is that This state that we're in now, this constant ongoing war, ongoing violence, we say it is not normal. All we're asking for is a normal state, which we feel is the state of peace is normal and a state of war is abnormal. And it hasn't been existent that long in human history. There was a time when people did not wage war as we know it today. You know, so we say peace is possible. It's the normal state. It's not normal to be killing each other. It doesn't work. It's not normal to be destroying the environment the way we're, we're destroying the environment. We consider that also a war. That's war on Mother Earth. It's all got to stop. That's not a normal way to live. We're, we've totally gone down the wrong path. It's abnormal what we have. So peace is very possible if you
0: want it. Peace is possible. You know. That's the voice of Tarek Kauf and... Doug Rawlings, two members of Veterans for Peace, they're talking to us about the original meaning of Armistice Day and why we need to reclaim that. Well, let me talk to you guys as veterans. You work to wage peace now. How do you see your role in connecting with active duty service men and women and helping them understand the very important role they play in this world as active members in the world's most powerful military? Go for it, Doug. Let's get you. All
4: right. Thanks. What we want to do is educate the general public about what happens during war and stuff like that, but also begin to educate the young men and women who are joining the military right now about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, And it's, it's a very, very fine line to walk, because you do not want to encourage young people in the military to jeopardize their careers or whatever. Uh, so you got to be careful how you talk to them, and 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 you open up various opportunities for them. You educate them. You tell them something that the Department of Defense is not going to tell them, which is they can become conscientious objectors while they're in the military, right? Based on their uh, discovery of real moral problems serving in the military. So that kind of thing also letting them know we have a series of we've had a series of gi coffee houses around you know just let them know that there are veterans around people uh, who have been through military service who have their back if they're beginning to question uh, what's going on uh, although we have to be really careful again of course of offering too much, but at least I'll let them know that there's a sympathetic voice uh, ear, to listen to them. That's the kind of stuff that we want to say to young people, right? Uh, and you know, and I uh, speak for myself. You know, I I am not for unilateral disarmament. I don't think we can go that way, unfortunately, in this world. So I do think it's necessary to have a defensive military to some extent. And so you know, begin to educate all of us, including you know, current soldiers, about what. So what what. What is a defensive military, as opposed to a a, a military that serves uh, a government that's got imperial design?
0: We're really running out of time here, but the last thing I want to ask you guys, since you are veterans, because tomorrow hundreds of thousands of people across this country will want to honor veterans. My dad, my stepfather both served. I mm-hmm. lost my uncle in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, I never yeah. got to meet him. My dad's yeah. brother, and many of my friends have joined the military. They'll have parades, we'll have free meals at some VFWs. I know in Antioch at post 6435, anybody out there, they'll be serving a hot lunch. But how would you two like to be honored as veterans?
4: I'll speak right from the top, It's you know, just from our, from our name. I'd, I'd much rather be remembered for my, for my real service for peace, as minor as it is, as opposed to the, my false quote unquote service. If for war. I'd much rather be working
0: on it. So you'd want to be recognized more for your peace. Absolutely. And then how about you, um, Tarek?
3: Well, I feel the same way. I feel that the real service that I've done came after my time in the military. When I was in the military, what was I serving? I wasn't serving democracy. I wasn't serving freedom. I was serving the people who get rich and wealthy and powerful off these wars. And it's not the people, you know? We have been to these wars, we kill other people, we destroy countries. That's not what I want to be, and what I think, I know Doug doesn't want to be honored for that. But after that, there's a time when, as an activist, you know, when someone working consciously and daily for peace, yeah, I don't need to be honored, but I would like to be emulated, let me put it that way. Yeah. I would like to be people to see our example, the example of people who were once soldiers, who were once military people, who might have done, might have even done terrible things, who are now working for peace and really working for peace and standing up for peace, speaking for it, and sometimes even getting arrested for peace, you know, just taking the stand. So I'd I'd like people to recognize that and say to all the people, you also can do it, you know. We don't need to be honored. Let's all be in this together. You know, we have a lot to do, and there's a world to save out there.
0: Thank you, sir. Well, that's the voice of Tariq uh, Veterans for Peace, and also Doug Rollins before him, also Veterans for Peace. And I would just like to um, thank you for your service in the name of peace, and thanks for joining us tonight on Full Circle.
3: Well, thanks so much. You bet.
1: Thanks for that interview, Franklin. Let's reclaim the original armistice day and remember the horrors of war so as to realize the need for peace. For more information on the Veterans for Peace call to reclaim Armistice Day and a list of actions you can take, check out our website, kpfaapprentice.org, and we will have a link to Veterans for Peace there. And if you want to head outside tomorrow, Bay Area Code Pink will hold a Reclaim Armistice Day Golden Gate Bridge walk with a rally starting at 1130 meeting at the Golden Gate Bridge Plaza and then heading to the bridge for a vigil at
2: noon. As we mentioned at the top of the show tonight, we'll feature music with anti-war themes. Some songs here... Uh, are so relevant during the long protest against the war in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos that they became hit songs multiple times. This next song was written by Buffy Sainte-Marie in 1964 and then became a hit as well for Donovan in 1965. It's a song that has been recorded every year since, and it is... Uh, published in 15 non-English speaking countries. It's a theme that unfortunately doesn't go out of date.
6: He's five foot two and he's six feet four fights with missiles and with spears He's only 31 and he's only 17 He's been a soldier for a thousand years He's a Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain A Buddhist and a Baptist and a Jew And he knows he shouldn't kill and he knows he always will kill you for me my friend and me for you and he's fighting for canada he's fighting for france he's fighting for the usa and he's fighting for the russians and for Japan. And he thinks we'll put an end to war this way And he's fighting for democracy He's fighting for the Reds He says it's for the peace of all He's the one who must decide Who's to live and who's to die And he never sees the writing on the wall condemned him at the helm. Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon to the war. And without him all, this killing can't go on. He's the universal soldier, and he really is to blame. But his boy. can't you see? This is
2: not the way we put an end to war. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. You just heard Universal Soldier, the original version by its composer Buffy Sainte-Marie. While November 11th is the anniversary date of the armistice ending World War I, the date has been used differently in the countries that were involved. In the U.S., we have created Veterans Day, a federal holiday to honor the service of all military personnel, the living as well as the dead. We have a separate holiday to mark the deaths of all soldiers who died while in the military, and that is Memorial Day. To be honest, growing up, I never really understood the difference. I
1: took for granted the history and meaning of Veterans Day, presuming, as Doug spoke to in Franklin's piece, that it was a super patriotic holiday glorifying war. There is such tremendous polarization when it comes to war. The more I learn about the history of militarism, the clearer it becomes that this chaos and confusion is intentional. We continue to be lied to by our government about why we go to war and military service. And I love how one of Franklin's guests challenges this term. Military service is made intentionally alluring for way too many of us. To shed some light on the phenomenon of war, I spoke with Jason S. Riddler Ramirez. Jason is a writer, improv actor, and left-wing military historian. His novels include Hex Rated, the first installment of the Brimstone Files series for Nightshade Press, Rise of the Luchador, and Deathmatch. He's also published over 60 stories and numerous academic publications. His next historical work, Mavericks of War, is forthcoming. A former punk rock musician and cemetery groundskeeper, Jason holds a PhD in war studies from the Royal Military College of Canada. He lives in Berkeley and is a teaching fellow for Johns Hopkins University. On tonight's show, we'll share two excerpts from the full interview, which you can find on our website, kpfaapprentice.org. Throughout the discussion, you'll hear excerpts from documentary films that reveal some of the ways we have been taught to accept war as status quo. All films can be found for free online. From your perspective, from your expertise, what is the military industrial complex and give a brief history of it.
5: All right. The MIC it was a term that was popularly coined by President Eisenhower in his farewell address of 1960. And what Eisenhower was warning against in his farewell address, and it was a it was a phenomenal thing for a president to do, was the what he called the undue influence of weapons manufacturers and private industry in shaping American foreign policy. That because the Cold War was so technologically focused with ICBMs and nuclear weapons, that the people who manufactured this material would have an incredible role to play in shaping how strategy and war was fought and he didn't think this was necessarily a good thing and in fact because their motive was profit right that's that's the obligation of of bombardier or lockheed martin or whatever because they have a a similar interest but a different goal than the military the military's interested in defeating its enemies with the most advanced technology yada yada, yada. but Eisenhower was really terrified that if left to its own devices, the weapons industry in the United States might actually bankrupt the country and turn it into a quote-unquote garrison state, which is what he wanted to avoid. As far as he was concerned, America's chief asset in the Cold War was a strong economy. You can't do that if you're perpetually buying expensive and untested weaponry in perpetuity, regardless of its validity. And so the Cold War set up these really sort of strange conditions that were very different than previous eras of warfare where the stakes were so high, and yet at the same time when the military, what it wants is weapons that it can test, it can't really test whether or not an ICBM is effective, right? It can't. It can game, it can theorize, but it can't actually hit Russia to figure out whether or not it's successful. So knowing that there would be no end state where these weapons were going to be tested in actual battle, meant there was a very strange equation to do with getting the next best weapon system throughout the Cold War. And so Eisenhower was warning about this. It's like, we can't actually test this stuff in real-life combat conditions. We're always told that the next weapon is going to be the most important because the stakes in a thermonuclear war are so astronomically high that there is going to be a push to keep putting money into greater and greater weapon systems regardless of validity That was dangerous. It put way too much influence in the hands of uh, private industry and, as far as he was concerned, outside of where it should properly be placed, which was within government.
1: That's really helpful. Thank you. Who are the active partners in the military-industrial complex today?
5: They're still the same same three players that, that Eisenhower warned about, which is the government, Congress... Ah, uh, the Pentagon. So the people who are sort of generating strategy and doctrine, and the weapons industry, or de- the defense industry. I shouldn't say just weapons because they're also talking about systems and ships and propulsion and, and other uh, other materials of war. The people who make it, because previous to the Cold War, even into sort of uh, until the First World War the role of industry in in military affairs grew exponentially because of the Industrial Revolution. Previous to that, people had weapons, like in the Crimean War, that didn't look that different from weapons 100 years ago. The Industrial Revolution changes this. So the Second World War acts as the massive catalyst for this in the United States, particularly by the end of the war, building massive amounts of material. The Cold War sets conditions for the need for perpetual armament. And then there was supposed to be in the 1990s what they called the peace dividend with the end of the cold war and the soviets as a major ally worth sacrificing most of the most of the national treasure to defend against there was supposed to be a retreat from the power of the military industrial complex that was the promise of the 1990s there would be human security peacekeeping missions but uh, vast armaments acting as a deterrent against another adversary of similar power kind of wasn't there that didn't stop the defense industry from existing of course and because their interest is in perpetually making you know profit for their shareholders and themselves those industries argue that whatever they make next is the most important thing without it you're doomed and who's going to be the one who says, we're not going to invest in that and have our boys come home in boxes, et cetera. Right. So there's a psychological warfare cost to, to dealing with them. That And, you know, I must be very blunt. I'm not an expert on the modern in, the military industrial complex. I just, of course it exists because those, those relationships have to exist. Whether they should, huge, huge question, but they do. Lockheed Martin exists. Uh, De Havilland exists. And their interest is in making as much money as possible in their industry with their only patron, which is the United States government. Or their only significant one. They do do international stuff, but let's face it, the largest defense department on earth is their greatest benefactor.
1: Back to war made easy. And tied in with that
7: is the worship of Pentagon technology.
3: I, I, I've fallen almost in love with the F-18 Super Hornet because it's, it's quite a versatile plane. i got to
7: tell you, my favorite aircraft, the A-10 Warthog, I love the Warthogs.
3: This uh, morning around 4 a.m. local time, the first three took off, and when you're 300 feet away from them, when they do it, you hear it in your shoes and feel it in your gut. The
7: Pentagon's influence on war coverage has also been evident in the news media's tendency to focus on the technical sophistication of the latest weaponry. Drink Should they have used so. more? Should they, you know, use a Moab, the mother of all bombs, and well, a few <laughs> daisy cutters? And, right. you know,
5: let's not just stop I, at a couple of cruise <laughs> yeah, okay. The right.
4: Newest, biggest, baddest U.S. bomb. We'll pound them with 2,000-pound bombs and then go 2, in.
7: 2,000-pound bombs in urban areas? Oh, sure. The plan I'm
4: holding in my hand here, the F-17. Stealth fighter was used in these attacks. Significant.
1: How do you steer this thing? I mean, there's no.
7: I mean, you have a stick. Is that right? Sure. We have the. Uh, both of us have matching center stick with left throttles. Uh, you can do every. Every war, we have U.S. news media that have praised the latest in the state of the art killing technology from the present
0: moment to the war in Vietnam. B fifty sevens, the British call them Canberra jets. We're using them very effectively here in this war in Vietnam to dive bomb the Viet Cong in these jungles beyond Da Nang here. Oh, well, Colonel, it's a great way to go to war. Yes, sir.
7: And there's a kind of idolatry there. Some might see it as worship of the gods of metal.
4: That's the JDAM. Uh It is a 2,000 pound bomb uh, that is deadly accurate. Uh, and that is the thing that is allowing us, allowed us in Afghanistan and will allow us in this next conflict to be terribly accurate, terribly precise, and terribly destructive. Amazing.
7: In fact, even as U.S. military technology has become increasingly sophisticated with the development of so called smart bombs and other forms of precision guided weaponry, civilian casualties now greatly outnumber military deaths a grim toll that has steadily increased since World War One.
1: I. I have a few more questions about this, and one that I didn't write down, but I'm just curious about your perspective on is the role of media in either confronting, challenging, or perpetuating the military-industrial complex.
5: The term has kind of fallen out of fashion, and I'm not sure if that's, like, by design or by, by the shifting trends of media chatter, right? It also feels very old school. There are other levels of media dialogue that are far more sophisticated than ones that were created in the 1960s. So in some ways, it's kind of been left behind. Yet, it's such a powerful precedent because it came from, of all people, you know, one of the orchestrators of victory on the Western Front in the Second World War. Eisenhower was, was not a dove. And yet this this man who was, you know, a supreme allied commander of NATO and president of the United States uh, said, we have to be careful of this. And he said this in 1960. So uh, it still has value and power. But in terms of like what the media talks about. No. Uh, you occasionally hear, and it's mostly from, you know, like, satirists, like on The Daily Show, about where are the major arm plans in congressional districts and what are the influences on government. That you see a fair bit of. In terms of media complacency and not acknowledging it, I can't speak to, although I'm taking classes at Liberation Spring, and this has been one of the major dialogues of the past couple of weeks, which is media portrayal of war in general— And I think we're getting to the military-industrial complex soon. And I would say the dialogue on weaponry and technology, there there is very little exception to the rule about where the fetishization is going, right? It's Mm -hmm. in the wonder of the weapons and whatever. But you don't hear as much deep digging from investigative journalists looking at the malfeasance or the complicity, except for the occasional 60 minutes that we'll talk about people switching from being Pentagon insiders and living in the beltway for... 20 years, and then all of a sudden being the chairman of the board at a uh, senior weapons manufacturer, that this relationship clearly exists. It's almost like an uncontested fact, so you don't question it anymore.
1: Right. Well, and when things are so normalized, that's how how institutional oppression, for example, is allowed to continue because it it's invisibilized. Right. Well, and I suppose my question isn't limited to just the military-industrial complex, but also war in general. In the vast majority of the country, war is still glorified. There's shows on CBS right now that are glorifying a police state, basically, and glorifying Navy SEALs, you know, in some ways trying to put the humanity into it. But why do we need to put the humanity into something that is inherently inhumane.
5: Well, uh, the why can be answered by profit motive, but from a moral standpoint, I've been studying war too long to see it anything other than as like grotesque and massive and trauma-inducing as it was for for my family and is for millions of others and has been since, you know, the ancient world emerged. I will say that at the same time what I hate about its portrayal the most in media is how simplistic Simplicity speaks to the lack of critique of its inhumanity on the one hand, and heroism being emphasized versus the cost of war. So that I'm pretty cognizant of, and I just don't like the idea that you know all soldiers are heroes, or that you know all war is good. If you you know if you back your nation, you can't be uh, anti-war and pro- troop or whatever. There's a series of sort of you know conceptual dichotomies that get thrown at us to keep things very very simple. And I have to be anti-this. I'm a scholar. I don't truck to that because. War is incredibly complex. There, Yes, bravery, courage, um, camaraderie, sacrifice. These exist in war, too. But here's the fun fact. You don't need war to have these things. Right. That they're emergent or forced upon folks who are experiencing these things, absolutely. It's part of that dialogue. But it amazes me some sometimes watching how war is portrayed. and I've, I've been hearing increasing criticisms of Ken Burns' Vietnam documentary on this front, that there is a still a romantic, almost nostalgic, uh, they tried their very best on, oh, they lost gloss to a 10-volume review of one of the most defining wars in U.S. history and not as much rigor, critical thinking about American arrogance, exceptionalism, the kind of stuff that as a historian, and granted, I'm a historian who was raised in Canada, with, which naturally had a critical eye of the United States, and I can't look at things like the Iraq War or Vietnam or Afghanistan as anything but complex phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Complex with with regards to the people who are living in those countries that fought a very different war than the ones that CBS was telling you about. So I kind of wish the complexity of war was championed more in popular media, but there's a very discreet and important reason that it isn't. And for those who know how to manipulate and sell their product very well, they don't want complexity. Complexity gets people thinking instead of saying, yay, this. And images, more of words, and images,
0: more of words, and images, more of words, and
1: images. Finally, finally. The psychological impact, the psychological
4: component here does appear to
3: be having some effect.
7: In 2003, a new word entered the English language, militainment. We now consume war in much the same ways we consume any other mode of entertainment. This has become a prominent feature of American life in the 21st century. The blending of war and entertainment is not necessarily a new phenomenon. What is new is the massive collaboration between the Pentagon and the entertainment industries. In addition, the scope of militainment has grown rapidly. The television war has now invaded popular culture on multiple fronts, including toys, sports, video games, film, reality television, and more. How has war taken its place as a form of entertainment? The answer to this question has powerful implications for who we are and the world we inhabit. Join me now as we map the terrain of this new entertaining war. This is Militainment, Inc.
1: You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA, and you just heard a clip from documentary film Militainment, Inc., which you can find for free in full online and on our website. Before that, you heard me discussing the military-industrial complex with left-wing military historian Jason Riddler Ramirez.
2: Before we open our next segment with another musical selection, I want to let you know some background on this next song. Fortunate Son was a huge hit for East Bay Band Creedence Clearwater Revival, decrying who were called to serve in Vietnam and who were uh, excused from the draft. This new song is a solo follow-up protesting the Iraq War declared by a true fortunate son, George Bush the Younger. By the way, we have a treat for you on our website. We have suggested sixteen anti-war songs that we had considered for tonight's show, and many of them you will, have, you won't know. So give us a look. And now the music.
1: Welcome back to Full Circle on KPFA 94.1 FM. You just heard I Can't Take It No More by John Fogarty. We're your hosts, Kat Petru and Darlene Pagano. Before the break, we share the first segment from my interview with left-wing military historian Jason Ridler ramirez in which we discuss the prevalence of the military-industrial complex and touch on the alarming relationship between the Pentagon and mainstream media. Now we'll turn to Jay's experience teaching writing to veterans and hear some of his thoughts on strategies for countering pervasive militarism. Let's talk about writing and its capacity for healing. Let's talk about veterans and your knowledge of war literature written by veterans and your own experience as a writing teacher.
5: Okay. Well, I I studied the literature of uh, primarily veterans, uh, people like James Jones and Hemingway and in sort of the American context, Frederick Manning and uh, John Dos Passos and Remarque. So sort of the biggies of the major world wars because they produced the most literature. That wasn't a, it wasn't a conscious choice other than that's what my, my my mentor was like interested in teaching me. And it, it got me interested in reading and working with veterans who had decided that writing was going to be their means of either catharsis or in some ways managing and dealing with the phenomenal experience of war. And I don't mean phenomenal in a positive sense, I mean like all-encompassing. War is a phenomenon unlike everyday civilian life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came to work for about two years with what was then called Military Experience in the Arts, uh, now called the Journal of Military Experience, which primarily works with veterans who are making that choice. They've decided that art in some ways has to be part of their story. And I've worked with uh, Afghan Iraqi vets, uh, a couple of Vietnam vets. And it's, it's heartbreaking, not only to do with, you know, if they've been combat veterans or even if they've just served and it was debilitating in some way, that there's not always a happy ending. One of the most profound experiences I had was reading a young soldier's work who couldn't come to terms with his own racism after serving in Iraq. Like, he just couldn't—he's like, I don't—he didn't like this about himself, and he knew, like, sort of rationally that it was wrong, but he couldn't help thinking about, quote-unquote, those people being, quote-unquote, that way. Mm -hmm. And I was just informed that he— He sadly came to a a rough end and never came to terms with the damage that was done by his experiences overseas, which were primarily combat. At the same time, I've dealt with Vietnam War veterans who perpetually go back and revisit, reconsider, and revive their experiences, find the common humanity that they had, the good that they did in the midst of a war that many people think of either as illegal or bad or wrong, not just because it was lost. And the kind of reward I get for helping someone who may not think of writing as their best friend, may actually think of this as a very distinct and powerful challenge, is really, I I teach a lot of different kinds of people. And teaching veterans who've had those kinds of experiences has its own unique kind of reward because they don't think they can do it. And then I'm like, I'm just asking you to tell your story. And I emphasize very clearly, it's like, I want it raw. I don't don't expect this to be a grade 11 composition class where, you know, if you don't do things right, the teacher's going to be mad at you. I read writers who are as raw and unvarnished as they get. Go with that if that's your gut. And knowing that they're allowed to, that they can be as ugly as what's, you know, screaming inside their head. I'm like, absolutely. Get it on the page. Let it be there if it's cathartic for you. I've also had students who have refused because it's too hot. And I'm like, that's absolutely okay. You're the best judge of what's too much for you.
1: Right. Can you please share some strategies about ending the military-industrial complex or even more broadly, ending war? And I know that's a massive question. (laughs) And I ask it to draw upon truly what you know of war. What conversations can we have that aren't just... Hopeful and magical thinking, as a, a really incredible scholar, Chris Hedges would say, but that have some grit, that have some teeth.
5: For sure, this is, this is a question that has plagued people far smarter than I for millennia. I mean, Plato was the one who said only the dead have seen the end of war, and I hope he was. I hope he's wrong, because there's been an increasing a volume of scholarship largely from the 19th century that, that tried to argue one of two sides, that war was actually net positive fiscally as well as like prestige-wise for nation-states, uh, or whether it was a destructive and, and cost-negative. And there was a particular German school of thought that thought it was great. Uh, and a man named John Neff wrote a compelling and forgotten work called War and Human Progress, which categorically said it was not. You could not take the values of war. Some of the, the positive things that emerge because of horrific circumstances, you could not stack those next to the amount of money and blood, sweat, and toil that has been spent in two world wars, let, let alone countless of smaller ones, and say net positive. It's impossible. I am really hoping that the future can be free of this as a means to solve conflict because we just keep getting too many ledger sheets filled with blood and treasure being spent and very little being accomplished other than perpetual suffering I'm not an ardent pacifist I think there are times when you have to fight and because you're either self protection or or if you're a nation state there has been some grave, grave danger that has to be protected through the use of organized violence through those who know how to use it maybe not a popular opinion here but
1: there's a difference between that kind of Protection versus, as you've named, you know, American exceptionalism or this imperial ethos or Mm -hmm. desire that's been acted upon time and time and time again by large nations.
5: And it almost always follows trade. The story of imperialism follows the expansion of world economies from a series of Western nations across the globe to dominate others. And with that came military power to protect those interests. France, Britain, uh, to a lesser degree, Germany and others. And then in, in the... 19th century, uh, the United States. So, if say the origins of these things tend to be about dominance over resources and fiscal strength, I would like to hope. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I believe it or not, I don't have a solution to this problem. But I would say that my hope rests in a couple of things: a growing global consciousness about. The cost of war actually not being what the myth makers make it out to be. That helps. The fact that they're, by dint of greater access to a variety of different kinds of literature, that you were not getting the one sort of patriot rah, 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 even though some sectors will hold on to that forever. I'm less interested in changing their minds. I'm more interested in changing the minds of the people that are curious and maybe swayed either way, which seems to be the greater. In general, the people who hold the hardest, most ardent view are almost always a very vocal minority, and most people are really. Scared and trying to make decisions for themselves. And to speak to that in political science and other fields, they talk about an empathy gap. It's really easy to sort of use war as a professional problem solver if you don't view the people on the other side as human. It's a necessary component of military training to see your adversary as dehuman because it breaks down the resistance of a human being to kill another human being because that's a terrible thing that most of us don't want to do. To act as a catalyst in against Viewing the world in dehumanized terms. I guess I got convinced of this reading Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, which is a, a very loud, very thick book that deals with the de-escalation of violence in human history over the like a millennium. And there are great arguments against it, but one of the things that I thought was a compelling element that a lot of people don't include is the role in the rise of literacy in generating empathy. That this can be a catalyst for people fighting against dehumanization of other people. We can't always visit or be with people who are different than us. But you can do it. And you can do it with books. And I will make a strident argument for the value of literature in this regard because as powerful as history is, and I'm saying this as a historian, as powerful as it is, uh, the one thing it can't do, the one thing as a historian I am forbidden of doing, is telling you what somebody thought.
6: Mm.
7: That
5: is a locked box that has no key. But I can be in the mind of a character in a novel or a short story or a a narrative poem, and I can walk with them as they experience hatred, oppression, racism, find the courage to challenge it, whatever the case may be. And so I would hardly recommend that is one of the pillars of changing the minds of of the the great confused and scared who are listening to a president talk about world war five and unemployment not magically vanishing because he became president going he's certainly demonizing a lot of people on the planet women primarily (laughs) at least with the uh, throughout the election cycle but everyone who's not uh, a rich white man like he is well what's an antidote to this i'll give you one book that i i wholeheartedly recommended which changed my tune on a lot of things, which is a anthology of short stories called God's Spies by Alberto Mangel. He collected stories against oppression from a variety of different authors from around the world. And the common element through all of them was that I was in their heart and their mind while they were suffering and trying to find peace. That allowed me to connect with people whose stories were vastly different across the globe, and yet they had this one commonality of me being with them and trying to understand their culture, their norms, their oppression. It's been one of my go-tos. If I'm ever feeling the the overwhelming smash of media blitzes trying to glorify war, and I say this as somebody who went to a military college and has tons of friends who serve, if I'm feeling too much of that simplicity, and dehumanization is the ultimate simplicity, right? Mm-hmm. You're not human, you're a thing. Right. One great antidote for it that I champion, because you can access it anywhere and you can be alone with it, you don't have to be with a large group, is reading the experience of others and walking in their minds and hearts as they struggle and try to survive.
1: You are listening to Full Circle on 94.1 FM, KPFA. We are your hosts, Darlene Pagano, and I'm Kat Petru. And that was a segment of my interview with left-wing military historian and professor, Jason Riddler Ramirez. For links to Jay's work, check out
2: kpfaapprentice.org. Continuing with a look at some more anti-war music, we next have a major rock song that seems to be frequently misunderstood. So much so that Ronald Reagan... Bob Dole and Patrick Buchanan had to each be told by the artist to stop using the song in their conservative political campaigns. Astonishingly, the staff of each of these candidates never bothered to listen to the lyrics of the song, not understanding its protest of the struggles of the working class and the use of men of this class as the soldiers of disastrous military decisions. In this case, it was Vietnam. It's a song calling out the failure of the country to allow participation in the American dream to the working class. Seems Republican candidates were only interested in the title and the chorus, trying to use it as a hyper-patriotic anthem. listening to Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA. We just heard Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. We have links to what has been covered here tonight and the music we've heard all on our full-circle website. That's kpfaapprentice.org. This show and many others are archived there. That's also the website where you can find out more about the First Voice Apprenticeship Program and apply for this opportunity to learn show production and broadcast skills in partnership with this station All that at, and it's all one word, kpfaapprentice.org. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show.
1: Tune in next week to Full Circle to learn about the relationship between the hurricanes in Puerto Rico and disaster capitalism. Our executive producer is Miss M. Our technical director is Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. We've been your hosts this evening, Kat Petru and Darlene Pagano. Thanks to Laura Chegaray on the board and our tech assistants from Group 43, Sharon and Steve. Thank you for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Stay tuned. La onda bajita is next.